Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're chatting with Jen Wilkin about the character of God as well as God's law. As you well know, Jen's passion is to see others become articulate and committed followers of Christ with a clear understanding of why they believe what they believe, grounded in the Word of God. Jen Wilkin, welcome back. Thanks. I know it's so great to be on again. Thank you for having me. Well, it's always such a joy to get to learn from you, whether I'm reading your books or sitting in this little sound booth just chatting with you. Speaking of, I have three-fourths of my Jen Wilkin library right here (laughs) in the sound booth with me, which is saying something because this place is so small. But you have a new book coming out, though, really soon, right? Yes, in March. Mm -hmm. Ten Words to Live By, and it's all about the Ten Commandments. What inspired you to write a book yeah, on the Ten Commandments, Oh, gosh. It's a confluence of a lot of things. I had done studies on the book of Exodus, which reignited my fascination with it. But I think some of it has just been, I think the space that I'm speaking into is the space of what does it mean? What does sanctification mean? What aspect of our salvation do we see there? And in a lot of the circles that I'm in, theological circles that I'm in, you know, it's the gospel-centered movement. And people don't understand how, the law could be good news. They see it living in opposition to grace rather than potentially being a means of grace in the life of the believer. If you're familiar with the theological issues surrounding the law, it's the threefold use of the law, that the law shows us what pleases God. That's kind of the aspect that I wanted to talk about because I think there's a lot of confusion out there about we don't want to be moralistic But I would say, but we do want to be moral. That is the call on the Christian life is to be moral, and the law helps us to be that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about Psalm 1-1. My daughters and I are memorizing right now, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Yep. And you really help illuminate that. I mean, do you want to offer any hot takes on that? Like, how is the law (laughs) our delight? Because a lot of times I think about the law being like this oppressive thing that like leads us to look to Jesus because we're like, we can't live under this. This Mm -hmm. is so hard. That is one of the uses of the law is that it acts as a mirror and it shows us exactly what the problem is. But that's why you need that other use of the law, that it actually points us toward the path. And it's interesting because like right now in the study that we're working on at my church, we're going through Proverbs and and the overlap. You know, uh, Psalm 1 is actually a wisdom 
wisdom psalm, right? And so there's a lot of overlap in the ideas of um, there are these two paths. There's a path of wisdom and there's the path of folly. And for the believer, the law is no longer hanging over us in judgment. It is now underneath our feet as the narrow path that we are to walk. That's where Jesus incorporates that imagery in, in his wisdom talk in the Sermon on the Mount. So people would say there's nothing more delightful than to be in the will of God. And God's will is is shown to us through His precepts, His law. For those who are wondering what God's will is, as I've talked about in many other formats as well, His will is that we would be obedient and that we would teach others to obey all that He has commanded. And there's a great delight and safety, as the wisdom literature tells us, in, in being on that path. Yes. One of the things that you have been such a help to me in is better understanding God's character and how we are to live in light of who he is. You talk about Psalm 111.10 to speak of the Psalms, which talks about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. When you interface with that verse, like how did that alter your perspective? And how did the Lord really use that verse to change the way that you were thinking about interfacing with his word and relating to him? Well, you know, I think like most of us, I had to get to a stage in life where I was overwhelmed and knew that the requirements of parenting and being a wife and having a job and all of those things were too much for me to be able to just improvise on. I needed wisdom that was outside of my own experience. And obviously, as a believer, I wanted that wisdom to come from the Lord. But I wasn't really sure, like, where do you start? Do you start with Bible study? I mean, is that how you get wisdom? Do you start with prayer? And so as I'm reading and and hitting that verse, it's like, oh my goodness, this is telling us where the beginning is, that the beginning of wisdom, the very starting point is to fear the Lord. And then as someone who had spent a lot of time in women's environments, like we never talked about the fear of the Lord. We talked about how perfect love casts out fear a lot. Even in the the worship songs that we sing and in so much of the writing that you see out there for women, it can almost sound like the goal of becoming a believer is to eradicate fear and doubt instead of to deal with our sin problem. When I came across that verse, I thought, gosh, how is that the beginning? How is that the starting point? And then meditating on it, you know, to riff on Psalm 1 1 and 2, meditating on that idea, just coming to see, oh my goodness, if, and I think this is what the wisdom literature is showing us, if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then the opposite of that is telling me something true as well that the fear of man, you know, what man thinks I should do or who I should be, that's going to be the beginning of folly. So these two paths each have a headway where we begin, and it's the fear of the Lord, that right reverent awe of Him that will set us on the path toward actually delighting in His law to tie together those two ideas. Yeah, you have me thinking about my girls sitting around the table. We've got this other one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools wisdom and instruction. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I think we fixate so much on not being fearful. And then we miss out on the reality that we are commanded in scripture so frequently to fear the Lord. So what does it actually mean to fear the Lord? I think the place that we see it articulated the most clearly is probably in Hebrews chapter 12, because we're given this vision of two different mountains. And the author of Hebrews shows us first Mount Sinai, where there was a fear of God's judgment. And then he shows us Mount Zion, where that fear has been removed because we come in, you know, to angels and festival assembly, assembly and the, the, you know, the rejoicing and all of the saints is this beautiful sort of culminating vision for the consummation of all things. But 
But then he alarmingly ends the chapter rather than saying, so let us snuggle up to Daddy God. He ends by saying, so let us worship the God in reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I think that what we can think is once the precious blood of Christ, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, is interposed for us, that all fear of all kinds is removed. But there is still an important place in the life of the believer for reverence and awe. And I think reverence and awe are inspired both by seeing God for who He is and for recognizing that though God's judgment is not coming for me, I deserved it. And that keeps us rightly oriented to understanding the magnitude of grace and, and the gift that's been given us, that, that relationship has been restored to such a God as this. Mm, yes, that ties together so much of this book that you have coming out, too, just about the first and the second commandment. How does growing in our understanding of who God is really help us to fear the Lord rightly? And how does it lead us to worship Him? Well, I think it just as Hebrews 12 gives us sort of this very nice wording for it, reverence and awe, I think that we see a little microcosmic example of it in several places in Scripture, but probably the, the most simple place to look for that is chapter 6 of Isaiah, where Isaiah has his vision of God high and lifted up. And, and basically what plays out in that little scene, and we also see it el- anywhere that anyone has a, has a vision of God, you see this similar thing happen. What happens? He understands understands God to be uh, much greater than he perceived. So his perception of God is, is right. And his response to who God truly is, the revelation of God's character, is that he understands himself in a way that he didn't before. His immediate response is to confess sin. Whoa. <laughs> Which is fascinating to me because if we say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he experiences the fear of the Lord and he immediately does something extremely wise. You could argue that the first wise act we perform is to confess our sin to the Lord. And so he he sees God, he understands himself rightly in relation to God, and that brings about uh, a confession of his need for forgiveness. He receives forgiveness, and then what? He's sent to his neighbor. And so you can see the whole thing playing out that the great commandment, that relationship it sets up for us of the vertical of us to God, understanding of ourselves, loving ourselves properly, and then right love of neighbor flowing out of that. Mm. You know, I reference the book on commandments that's coming out. And the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in (laughs) heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. I'm telling you, man, my kid's scripture memory is coming to play in this conversation, Jen. This is tough. But how does the second commandment guard against small thoughts about who God is? There's another good story, I think, that is pointing us to what's happening when we break the second command. Because I think most of us read it and we're like, oh, this is super easy. I don't actually whittle. I don't actually paint or whatever. It is. You know, So I'm not going to do anything to violate the second command. But making a graven image is something that we are all actually open to doing, sometimes using the medium of our own imagination, where before we ever put pen to paper or sculpt anything um, that we've already formed a wrong estimation of God. But a story in the Bible that I think ha- that is instructive to us on this is also one of the most well-known breakings of this commandment in that it comes immediately after we've been given the Ten Commandments, and that is when Aaron fashions the golden calf. Yes. It's crazy. When you're reading that story, like in a chronological Bible reading plan, that's the first time for me that it like 
wow, right after they come yeah. out of Egypt, right after they receive the law, like then they're doing this golden calf thing. Like that's crazy. Yeah, it's cuckoo. And so the original audience would have recognized the image in a way that is not immediately uh, evident to us if we're not that familiar with Egypt and Egyptian deities and also with Canaan and Canaanite deities. But the principal deities in both of those pantheons, there was a principal deity that was represented by the image of a bull. And so, interestingly, when Aaron um, creates an image which he wants to represent Yahweh, like there are ties in the text that he he intends to give an image that is representing Yahweh, the one true God, what does he do? He takes an image that they're already familiar with, but he does something very significant with it. He does not represent Yahweh as a bull. He represents him as a gentle and delightful little calf. And so he chooses to focus in on some aspect of that would appeal to people as approachable, as um, non-threatening, but still something they could bow down to. So unlike, but still like the gods of the foreign neighbors. God will have none of that. He will not be derivative of someone else's version of God. But here's the thing that we have to deal with. He will not be derivative of the version of God that He is. And I think that's the more common way that we carve a graven image. We choose to focus in on one thing that is true about God at the expense of the other things that are true about God. So you can see this play out in our culture, which is nominally... Uh, Christian in the way that it articulates ideas about God. And, and you'll see that the one thing that people have focused in on is that God is a God of love. That's what's everywhere, right? And He is. Love is one of His attributes, but it is only one. And when we only talk about one attribute, or if we focus primarily on talking about one and we grow silent about others, then we make a golden calf. We fashion God after an image that is appealing to us. Mm, that makes so much sense. Okay, so we know it's important to understand God's attributes and his character, but we need to understand them rightly. So how should we seek to understand God's attributes? Well, I would say a very good place to start is to begin reading the Bible as a book about God. And I know that that is a dumb, obvious thing to say. Like everybody agrees that the Bible is a book about God, but we don't always read it as though it is. We typically come to it asking it to tell us about ourselves before we ask it to teach us about God. Uh, and that would be a little like Isaiah in that throne room scene as God begins to manifest before him saying, well, but can we talk about me? I think the illustration I've used commonly is Moses at the burning bush, which actually is exactly what Moses does, is God is like, here I am. And Moses is like, oh, can we talk about me a little bit? And so we don't want to do that with the Bible. So I say, you know, read the Bible as a book about God, like read with eyes that are looking for um, what is true about God. But I will say this. Most of us have an atrophied vocabulary and an atrophied understanding about what we should be looking for because we are so immersed in a Bible reading culture that is not training our eyes on this. And so I would urge you to get your hands on a very basic systematic theology text. I mean, obviously, I've written two books on the attributes of God. This is why I wrote them, because I knew that women, uh, it was one thing to ask people to read this way and another thing to give them some tools to get them started on the path. Get yourself just some very basic working definitions of the things that are true about God and then ask the Lord to train your eyes on, on those things as they're being presented to us in Scripture. 
It's so fun to see your impact, Jen, just on other women in this regard. Even Kelsey Hensey sent me her most recent study on first and second Thessalonians. And in the back, she includes just a really helpful index and encourages us as we're reading through the text to make note of what attributes of God are showing in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. So how is God different from us? Can you tell us some of those attributes that we want to be kind of on the lookout for as we read? All of the things that are true about God can be loosely grouped just for just for a helpful way of thinking about it into two categories. There are those that can be true about us, and we call those his communicable attributes. So God is loving. I can be loving. God is gracious. I can be gracious. But then there's this other set uh, list called the incommunicable attributes, which are the things that are only true about God and will never be true about me. And those are things like God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. And those can be held under the umbrella of his being infinite. So God is not bound. He has no limits on his person or being. Uh, We are bound. And because we are bound, it means that even though we know we are created in his image, that the way that we image him is always linked to being finite. And so if you think about it, the communicable attributes can be expressed in limited human form, but the incommunicable attributes cannot be. In fact, when we try to express them in limited human form, we commit idolatry. So just an example would be omniscience. I am limited in the amount of knowledge that I can possess. My brain can only hold so much information. I might become an expert in maybe one thing in my lifetime if I really apply myself. Conversely, God is an expert in all things. <laughs> you know, he knows them all perfectly and effortlessly, and he didn't learn any of them. He has all knowledge because he is the origin of everything that exists. So that's very different uh, than the way that humans uh, obtain and maintain knowledge. But my smartphone tells me that I can be omniscient. It simulates for me omniscience. And I think that's why they're so addicting is because we look at that and we say, and I'm not, I'm not hating on technology just for the record. I'm just trying to illustrate why the appeal is so great to us and, so, and can have an addictive nature because we look at that. And just as Eve in the garden was told, you will become like God, we have a subconscious desire to become like God in ways we were not created to be like God. You think about that story of Eve. Why would the serpent promise her something that she already had? She already was like God. Like in Genesis 1, 26, she was made in his image. So what is the offer that the serpent makes to her? And it is that she would take on attributes or desire, strive to take on attributes that are only true of him. Those things, those things that are linked to his infinity are meant to humble us, to cause reverence and awe. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. 
I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. I really appreciated the story of Thomas Edison in your most recent book, 10 Words to Live By, and how like he created the light bulb and he also did not want to sleep and rest. Wasn't that the weirdest thing? I think it's really interesting. And then also how that points us to yet another thing, like a danger, I guess, if you will, in us like not embracing the reality that we need rest and trying to be like God. What is there an attribute that that relates to? Uh, yeah, omnipotent. God holds all power and we don't. We are limited in our exercise of power. And I think the other one that's tied to that, well, there's two, self-sufficiency and self-existence. God has the power of life in himself. No one gives it to him. Um, And God has everything that he needs. No one is giving him something needful. Uh, But we, by contrast, because we're limited, we are derivative. We require that he breathe life into us at every moment. And we are not self-sufficient. We are actually designed to be needy, to need things outside of ourselves. And one of those things is rest. I feel like the answer to this is pretty obvious, but I'd love to hear you talk about it a bit. What's the danger in trying to be like God when clearly we're not? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, you'll self-destruct. And I think that's what the wisdom literature is saying. You know, Eve chooses to be wise in her own eyes. And um, that's why I think the rest of the Bible is telling us that the path of folly ends in destruction. It goes down to the grave is the way that it describes it, which is exactly what God says. You will die. You will surely die in the day that you eat of it. We're just not designed or built to function Uh, in ways that are only suited for the infinite. It makes it pretty incredible when you think about the fact that God is all of these attributes all the time. How is God always consistent with all of his attributes and why is it important for us to keep that in mind? Yeah, this is a really hard thing to understand, but in some ways we might have some human analogs that we can look to to help us understand it. This is a doctrine that's referred to as the simplicity of God. So basically, He's one in essence. I think the biggest sticking point that people run up against is God being just and also still gracious at the same time. But we do understand a little of how this functions in human terms. I mean, even as a parent, you know, I can I, I know how this can play out. My character can be that I am gracious And that does not get set aside just because I have to administer justice to a child who has disobeyed. And even in some sense, there is grace in the fact that I administered justice and that I am just at the same time. So you can hold two things that seem to be oppositional as character qualities at the same time, even though an action might be manifesting one character quality in a particular moment and not another. It's similar to when people see or experience something like in nature, like with a tsunami or something like that. How is it that we see God's character being fully consistent in something like as tragic as that? That is a really good question for people to weigh. And I think that is when we have a hard time, right, is when there's something Mm -hmm. that happens that we can't reconcile with the character of God. Uh, And so therefore we think, well, then God is a liar, 
And we have to understand that if he truly is who he says he is, if he's eternal, if he exists outside of time, if he's the alpha and the omega, seeing the beginning from the end, if he holds all knowledge and all power, so it's you know the sum, bringing to bear the sum total of who he is claiming to be, and if I am who he says I am, if I can only hold a certain number of facts and, and even process them only to a limited degree, that I should understand that though I may not be able to understand in my lifetime what God has done in an event like that, that it doesn't mean it's inconsistent with his character because I'm holding only a handful of the pieces of the puzzle and he sees all of it all at once. That is so helpful. What's the danger in elevating or emphasizing one of God's attributes above another? We tend to emphasize the one that either has caused us the most harm in in the way we perceived it or has given us the most comfort. Mm -hmm. I think about like so many people who grew up in a tradition of guilt. They've overemphasized that God is a God of justice at the expense of His mercy and grace. And sometimes they just can't move on from it. It has so formed their understanding. Or it may be because an earthly parent leaned more toward a demonstration of justice than grace or, you know, it was heavy on rules and light on relationship. And then I think the converse is true for those who crave relationship and fear that rules are going to jeopardize that they're going to gravitate more toward a vision of God as a friend or a companion. And I think you're seeing there two things that that we need to hold as equally true, getting out of balance. God is transcendent. In other words, he's seated and thrown between the cherubim, and he's also imminent. He is close and present and nearby. He's our Father, and he's also in heaven, as the Lord's Prayer would say. I think in any generation, or really in any small group, you have a mix of, there's an emphasis that leans one way or the other. So we're always looking to make sure we try to hold those two things simultaneously true. That really relates to the commandment of, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you were talking a lot about having a high view of who God is and honoring Him. I remember the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts, you know? How does that relate to honoring God and holding His name in reverence? And yet, the reality that Jesus is our friend and that He's our brother and that we are able to be in close relationship with Him. I'm always trying to diagnose, like, what is the current lean for the room I'm talking to or for the generation that I inhabit in the church. And I would argue that this generation of believers leans heavily toward needing God to be personal. And I think that we've brought people to this place because we have presented the gospel as, do you want a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And the way that individualism has shaped the way that so many of us think even about our faith. So one of the things we found that we have to emphasize even discipleship in my local church is, well, yes, you are saved into a personal relationship, but you're also saved into the community of believers. You're a part of the church, and that is significant. And the Bible is certainly written to you individually, but it is mostly giving instructions to us, to a plural you, not a singular you. And people hear that, and it's a little deflating to them sometimes because I think we've emphasized the personal aspect so much. What can end up happening is because even the way that we speak of the the second member of the Trinity, the Son, is formative. Um, We become formed into something that we perhaps didn't intend to come to pass. So 
I see this play out often in like the Jesus and tacos or Jesus and coffee. It's meant to be lighthearted. So please don't think that I see that and I'm like, oh, you're a villain and you hate God. You know, I don't think that at all. I think it is showing something that we should pay attention to though, because the name Jesus, just as an example, is used in the Bible in a particular way. It is used to refer to the son in his humiliation. So there are two phases in the in the story of the incarnation that we need to understand. There's his humiliation and his exaltation. So don't think of humiliation the way that you and I would think of it, like I'm so embarrassed. Think of it as his taking on as Philippians 2. He didn't grasp the quality yeah. of God, took on the servant's nature. Jesus is his given name. It's like, my name is Jen, right? But then throughout the epistles, after the ascension, when he, he his exaltation, we find that the writers of the epistles refer to him almost exclusively overwhelmingly as Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I think uh, the number was in all, is it 24 of the epistles that he's referred to as Jesus only 28 times and over 480 times as Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you see him referred to as Jesus in the gospels by the gospel writers. But if you're paying attention, not even those who interact with him in the gospels refer to him as Jesus with the exception of some demons who actually then call him Lord immediately after that. People call him rabbi or they call him master. And so we don't use titles of respect when we're speaking of him. And those titles of respect are liturgical. When we say them, they change the way that we perceive someone. I always just think you probably wouldn't ever make the t-shirt that says coffee and the Lord Jesus Christ. It just doesn't work, right? I mean, you realize, oh, shoot, I was leaning toward thinking a low thought. I associated what is precious with something that is common in a way that I just wouldn't if I were thinking about it a little bit more. I think people are repeating what they have heard repeated, but I do wonder what would happen if we sought to speak of Jesus Christ the way that the Bible speaks of him. Yeah, I was just having a conversation with some of my friends who are in the neighborhood. They're Israeli. And we were having a similar conversation about Yahweh and whether or not it's written in the Hebrew language. And they're like, "Uh, no, you would never, ever even write, even without the vowels or whatever, you would never write it down. Like that Mm -hmm. would just be not something that we would we would use a different name just out of reverence and awe. And it was a really illuminating conversation for me, even just hearing the way in which they speak about God with such reverence. It was challenging to me. Well, and we know this intuitively. Like you think about how we train our children not to refer to another parent as Susan. You know, like they need to have some title of respect as a, or a coach or a teacher. You know, like the second grade teacher doesn't say, just call me Anne, because she knows that she needs this, the students to recognize her as Ms. So-and-so. Yes, ma'am. How did the Ten Commandments help really keep us in our place as created (laughs) beings and as worshipers of God? Well, newsflash, we can't keep them. So they help keep us uh, dependent on the Lord because we break them. We continue to break them, and we will for as long as we live this life. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that if the New Testament can be believed, and I think it can, that passages that say things like grace teaches us to say no 
to unrighteousness are helping us to see that we do actually grow in our ability to obey. And now, obviously, anyone who's been a Christian for very long knows that even as we grow in our ability to obey, we grow in our awareness of just how disobedient we are, which is why I think Paul says, I'm the chiefest of sinners, because the more we meditate on God's law, the greater we understand our failure at obeying it to be. And God is so kind to us that He does not hit us with the sum total of the debt when we come to faith. I think that we have a lifetime to recognize both the beauty of obedience and the cost of disobedience. But sanctification says you, by grace-driven effort, by the sanctifying power of the Spirit, can become a law abider. We don't say, oh, all I do is break the law, but there's grace. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And so um, we walk the path. And the reason that we should strive to obey the law is because the law illustrates the character of God. But not only that, the law is what shows us how to be like Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law. And so when we say, I want to be conformed to the image of Christ, essentially what we're saying is, I want to be lawful as someone who understands the beauty of the law as an expression of God's character. I'm in God's family. Therefore, I want to live in God's world in God's way. How does gazing long at his character and just continuing to look our faces to him, to growing in our understanding of his character actually help us then to begin to emulate it and to live like he wants us to live? I go back to one of the earliest principles that jumped out to me regarding just reading the Bible, and that is that we become what we behold. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's a classic women of the word. Gosh, well, I mean, I stole it. It's not original to me, you know, but I think we forget how formative uh, the things that we gaze on are. And so when we begin to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, we begin to want to look like him and to imitate him. Certainly, imitation is not effortless, but just as you know, with anyone who you've ever em- emulated and wanted to imitate, it does become more intuitive as time goes by. Especially when we have those great feedback loops of doing it wrong and having a consequence, you know, which God is actually gracious to allow us to experience. And so I do think it just comes down to where are you fixing your gaze? And don't be surprised if you start to look more like path of folly than the path of wisdom. If if you spend all your time gazing on that, which is foolish. Mm. There's so many things I want to ask you, but I got to sneak one last one in. You know, you mentioned this at the beginning of the conversation where you have this epic scene of, you know, the golden calf and the reality that that calf had been shaped off of or based on. They they got the idea from the people around Mm -hmm. who were worshiping the bull, okay? (laughs) How do we do that? What's an example of how we might fall into that today? Just taking the attributes of little G gods in the world around us and applying them to God. I think that we make God like us because we make our relationship with God transactional in a way that our relationships with others can too often be. And I'm not saying that human relationships should be transactional, but too often that's what they devolve into. So in other words, it's how can I use you for my benefit? And we do this even with God. And this is the whole classic, you know, 
I want God's stuff. I don't want God. That's what uh, my pastor will say a lot of times when he's trying to get at this relationship. So we see God as a dispenser of gifts and blessings. And if I do X, then God will do Y. And really, that's this is just one example of how what we've done is we have actually elevated ourselves to a place of omnipotence in some sense. In other words, I can control the Almighty either by my obedience or my disobedience. I can obligate Him to to me by living my life a particular way. And so we actually trade places with him. Now we would still say, no, 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 God can do whatever he wants and he's omnipotent. But really, if he doesn't deliver after we've done our part, then we we wonder in our heads, is he not true to his promises? And so we've just made him into a smaller God than he really is. He's a God who is waiting on us to pray or who's waiting on us to be obedient in order for him to either carry forth his will or dispense blessings. And that's not the God of the Bible. Yeah, I particularly love your example of worshiping the God of Mammon. I think a lot of people have that idea that if I am have enough faith in like, I'm going to receive this financial blessing or benefit from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, I know where it's coming from. It's coming actually from a Bible literacy problem. It's coming from reading Proverbs as promises. There are so many statements in the wisdom literature about if you do this, then God will bless you. If you give to, the, you know, give him of your first fruits, then your storehouses will be full. And so people who don't understand the genre of wisdom literature take a statement like that and they offer it as a promise instead of as a principle. So, you know, what wisdom literature is doing is saying, hey, you should wear your seatbelt. You know, we know, okay, well, if I don't wear my seat, if I wear my seatbelt, it doesn't mean I won't have a car accident. Yeah. If I have a car accident, it doesn't mean I'll survive it. But I should still wear my seatbelt because I'm more likely to have a good outcome. That's what wisdom literature is doing. But when we want to fashion God into our own image as the one who, if we do this, he will do that, we will take a verse like that and turn it into something that it is not. I think that most people misapply those verses just out of a simple ignorance of how to read the text, Mm -hmm. but that then there are those who are either false teachers or manipulators who will take a verse like that and use it for personal gain. And they're able to fashion God, a lower version of God, into an image that we will worship because we haven't been trained in the scriptures. Mm, your book, Women of the Word, is such a help. That was your first book, correct? It was, yes. I know everybody who's listening already has it. I want to explain the other books, though, just because since we're talking about God's character, I think it'd be helpful for them to understand the differentiation between none like him and in his image. None like him is really about the incommunicable attributes of God, correct? Yes. The things that only God is. and. Yes in his image is how we can image him and image him through the communicable attributes. Is that right? That's right. And then you have the new one, 10 words to live by. So those are all things that I would recommend to the listeners. You need a corner in your theological library for Jen Wilkin. And if you don't have it, start chipping away at that even now. That's my practical step for listeners who want to grow in their understanding of who God is. What would you say for them to begin to do if they're wanting to better understand who he is? So, I mean, I would point them toward the book that was kind of the fountainhead for me, so to speak, was The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier. That was a really good starting point for me. And then another one would be The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Those were two that really helped me to begin to think about, to have a vision of God high and lifted up, to begin on the path of the fear of the Lord. Uh, Because I had grown up in a tradition um, that had sort of a smaller presentation of God that focused more on His communicable attributes than His incommunicable. So those are two really good starting places. 
Mm. You know, I really wanted to ask you, I like reserved this question just for fear of accidentally elevating one of the attributes. <laughs> but I have a curiosity about maybe as you were going about your study, if there are maybe one or two, a few attributes that really just helped you have a right perspective of who God is, maybe one that you like had a, a void in. And then when you came to understand it, you're like, wow, like that just changes the whole game for me. There was a Bible study, I'm sure it's still out, that is associated with R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God book. And I remember in it, he asked the question, I'm pretty sure I even put this in in his image. He asks the question, something along the lines of, you know, the only thing that is said three times of God is that he's three times holy. And then he says, if I were to come to your church's worship service or whatever, it's not a word exactly like this. uh, If I sat there and participated in your service, what attribute of God would have been three times repeated in the way that, you know, I perceive your service? Three times loving, three times, you know, what would it be? And so it was just a really good way to think, oh gosh, what environments have I been? What is the primary view of God that's being presented to me in the way that my church or the spaces that I'm in are showing Him to me? And so, yeah, I had grown up in spaces that just didn't spend a ton of time on the holiness of God, tended to spend a ton of time on the loving uh, and merciful and gracious pieces. So that was really formative for me to just think about God being holy. For me personally, convicting would be the immutability of God because I do not like change. Not only do I not like change in my world, I became so aware of how I did not want to change myself. Uh, I wanted to just say that's who I am. I can't change when it came to some pattern of sin or shortcoming or whatever it was. And to realize that only God can say that about himself. Um, and that my hope of the gospel and my sanctification was that I can change was both convicting and so hopeful at the same time. Oh, I love that so much. Well, I definitely, one of my simple joys is going to be thinking through these things today. I've asked you this in the past. I'm curious if it's changed, but I've kind of put a twist on my simple joys question for you, Jen. What are three of your simple joys when it comes to knowing God more? I don't know what I said last time. Well, I think one of them was pugs. Yeah, pugs for (laughs) sure. Okay, simple joys as it relates to knowing God. I would hope that the way anyone would respond to this would have a lot to do with their personality. So I'm sure anyone who spent any amount of time listening to me talk knows that my personality is pretty out there. And so I feel like what I have taken the most away from in this conversation is when James says, you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Those are the invert of what I am. Like, like I am quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to become angry. That's my operating position. And so the more that I have meditated on the character of God, both in what I'm not and what I might become as I'm conformed to the image of Christ, I have been pressed to be what James is saying is the path of wisdom. And I've learned to hold my tongue more. I've learned to only speak when I actually have something to add to the conversation. I've learned how quickly my anger is kindled and that anger shouldn't be a motivator for my messaging. And just that listening is honoring Obviously, it's honoring to the Lord, but listening to others is the first step in being able to address any spiritual concern that I might be able to help with. And so I think just for me, growing small in light of who God is, it relates directly to those three measures. 
Girl, I just have so much respect for you and everything that you have taught me, even at a distance, in the way in which you go about that publicly. So thank you so much. You have had a great impact genuinely on myself and on so many of the listeners who are listening today, Jen. And we would love to hear from you. Who is it that's had the greatest impact on your understanding of who God is? Mm -hmm. I've already mentioned my main hit list. It's A.W. Tozier and R.C. Sproul. Definitely were my ma- major influences, not just in this, but in other things, R.C. Sproul, certainly. Tozier, I have learned just in recent years, was a wonderful teacher of truths about God, but was perhaps not the best person to have in your family. He was a, a little bit of a disappointment on a personal level, from what I understand. And so I think about that a lot. I don't want to be someone who's just good about writing about God or teaching about God. I want to be someone whose life reflects it in my most personal spaces. So if my family hates my guts and I'm a good theologian, then what am I even doing? And then there's R.C. Sproul, who by all accounts seems to have run the race well, you know, made it to the end. And so I think I'm challenged by both of those influences for slightly different reasons. I was so crushed when I learned that Tozier was not someone who you would want in your family. So crushed, didn't even know what to do with it. And I think we all have been facing that in various ways with people that we put on pedestals. I can't fix someone else's broken story or track record, but I can certainly try to learn from it and ask the Lord to to just keep grounding me in, in, um, in humility and try to live what I'm teaching. Well, I see him doing that in you, my friend, even at a distance. And I am so grateful for your example. Thank you so much for joining us on the Journey Women podcast today. Thanks you so much for having me on again. So much fun to get to talk to you again. We pray this conversation stirs your desire to seek to know and love God and His Word and to delight in His law. Thanks so much for listening today. You can find all the information from this episode in the show notes at journeywomenpodcast.com. I also want to say thanks to all of you who took the time to leave a rating interview for Journey Women on iTunes last week. We aren't just asking you guys to do this to build our little Journey Women platform over here, but reviews actually do make it possible for other women to find the podcast as they're searching on iTunes. It can be as simple as this review from Jennifer Gian, who said, This podcast has given me a greater love for God and His Word. Thanks, Jennifer, and thanks to all of you who have taken a few minutes to help us out in this way. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.